You now turn to the book of Jonah. It's probably not a book you have turned to many times. So if you don't know how to find Jonah, it's on page 774, if you have one of the Pew Bibles. Uh, if not, you're going to hit near the end of the Old Testament, a long list of very small books. Uh, it's right after Hosea, Joel, Amos, and Obadiah. But if you hit Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, any of them, you've gone too far. So it's just two pages, at least in the Pew Bibles. Again, page 774. Looks like people are there. We're going to be reading this morning, Jonah 1, verses 1 through 3. So please pay attention to the reading of God's holy word. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, the grass withers, the flower, it fades, but your word will stand forever. Help us to be attentive to your word this morning. Give, give us ears to hear from it, eyes to see, that we may know you more fully, know what you require from us, since we confess that it really is in your word alone that we know how to love you and obey you. So we ask for your help and the help of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So this summer, at least until the very beginning of August, we're going to be going through the book of Jonah. Jonah is one of the books called, uh, that's in a group of books called the Minor Prophets. It includes Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. And if you knew all of those and you knew them in order, good job. These are often, I think, some of the most overlooked books in the entire Bible. If we're honest, I think many of us have forgotten at times that Nahum was even a book in the Bible. And I want you to ask yourself a couple of questions. These aren't to guilt you, but just to, you know, for you to analyze your heart and your mind. If someone asked you, could you name a single significant thing about the book of Obadiah? Could you name a single significant thing about the book of Joel? When is the last time that you studied any of the minor prophets to any depth? How about this? Have you ever heard a sermon from Nahum? No? Again, I'm not, I'm not trying to guilt you. And if you have, good for you and good job for your pastor, wherever you were before coming here. Really, my goal here is to, to pique your interest. These are books that I think we overlook, books that we haven't often spent time in, but we confess that all of the word of God is of use for us. The children's catechism this morning, where do you learn how to love and obey God? In the Bible alone. And I could even add to that, in the whole Bible alone. We want to, at Livingstone, do what's called preaching the whole counsel of God, which means we want to preach all of the Bible. We don't just want to preach from our favorite books or our favorite topics. 
or just those few things that we think are relevant at any, give, at any given time, we believe that God has given us all 66 books of scripture for our edification to be built up as a church. Paul wrote in 2 Timothy chapter 3, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. All scripture is breathed out by God. All scripture is of use for us, to reproof us, to correct us, to train us in how to live for God. And that includes Obadiah and Joel and Micah and Nahum and Jonah and all of the minor prophets. So we need to know that these books are called minor, not because they're unimportant, but because they're very small. So you have the major prophets and the minor prophets, and they're not minor because they're unimportant. And we really want to dive into that over this next year. So after we go through Jonah, at the end of the summer, we're going to do a short stint in 2 Thessalonians. And then starting in the fall, when Josh returns from his sabbatical, we're going to dive into the other 11 minor prophets and walk through them through this next year. So when it comes to the minor prophets or any of the prophetic books in the Old Testament, Jonah is a very unique book. It's by far the best known of the minor prophets, which I think is largely due to the big fish, right? You'll probably never see a children's book about Obadiah. And if you do find a children's book about Obadiah, tell me, because I think that would be very interesting. But of course, every child likes to hear a story about a guy being swallowed by a big fish. It's so much more fun, isn't it? And of course, I love fish, so that's why I'm preaching from Jonah, right? No, not really. Now, I want to get this out of the way from the start. If you knew that I have a bachelor's degree in fisheries management, that most of my life I wanted to be a fish biologist, and you were hoping that maybe James was going to tell us what type of fish it was or what type of whale it was that swallowed Jonah, then you're going to be disappointed. I'm not going to do that for you. First off, because I don't know. And the reason I don't know is the text doesn't tell us. I think generally people have an issue with the book of Jonah because they try to disprove it scientifically. They say, it can't be that there's something big enough to swallow a person. Or even if someone was swallowed by something living in the ocean, they couldn't survive for three days in his belly. And of course, if we're Christians, we don't have any problem with supernatural things. We don't have to try to prove how scientifically the man Jesus could rise from the dead. We don't have to prove scientifically how someone got their sight back who was born blind. And I don't think we should have to try to scientifically prove that living in the Mediterranean, there's some species big enough to swallow a man and he could survive in his belly three days. Really what's on display is the work of God. And it's a miraculous work of God. So I just wanted to get that out of the way right away. And I'm not going to be commenting as much on the fish through the rest of this book as I am on Jonah and what it shows us about God and ourselves. So what makes Jonah unique is not so much that there's this big fish. It's really the style of Jonah that makes it stand out. Where all of the minor prophets are primarily prophetic declarations, the book of Jonah is primarily a narrative. So what I mean by that is most prophets, most of the prophetic books, the minor prophets and other prophetic books, contain a lot of declarations from prophets that are given on behalf of God. But Jonah doesn't tell us much about 
what the prophet Jonah said, it tells us more about what the prophet Jonah did. So it's a narrative. It's more of a story than it is merely a dialogue or a declaration or speech. And Jonah is also very, very well written. Jonah is, in my opinion, one of the most engaging books in the entire Bible, uh, just even from a literary standpoint. Even if you weren't a Christian, I think you could read through this book and recognize that from a literary standpoint, it is beautiful. There are, there are plot twists, there's irony, there's engaging dialogue, there's poetry, and there's a very intentional structure. It's one of those books that's so well-written and it's so simple that you can read through it once and you can get the big idea. But you can also read through it over and over and over again and find new things and new layers of complexity in it. And I actually encourage you this summer to sit down and read through Jonah from cover to cover. It's only 48 verses. It's actually about the same length as Acts chapter 2. So I'm not asking too much for you to sit down and read through the book of Jonah and to really take in the whole story all at once. But we're going to be working through it pretty slowly this summer. So you can tell I'm only doing three verses this morning. The unique nature of Jonah and all of its literary beauty that we're going to see has often raised a lot of questions about the genre of Jonah. Is Jonah historical or not? Is it, is it fiction or nonfiction? Some see it as just a very well-written story that has a good point for us, but it doesn't necessarily need to describe real historical events. And again, as I said, often the reason that people see that is because they have a problem with the big fish. Sometimes people have a problem with supernatural things, but I don't think that we should have that issue. And I think there's two good reasons for us to take this, even though it is a well-written story, as real historical events. And the first is that Jonah is a real historical person. He shows up in the book of 2 Kings chapter 14 and is listed as a prophet who prophesied in the northern kingdom of Israel during the reign of Jeroboam II. So he's testified to elsewhere in scripture as a real person, not just a made-up prophet. But then second, and I think more significant, is how Jesus handles the book of Jonah. Jesus references the book of Jonah multiple times in the Gospels, in his own teaching. We're going to be looking at those as we go through Jonah. And what's interesting is that Jesus seems to treat Jonah as a historical book, with Jonah as a real historical character that foreshadows Jesus' own death and resurrection. Jesus treats the Ninevites as historical people. So if Jesus treats it as historical, that should be more than enough of a reason for us to look at this book and say it's not just a good story. This is really things that happen. And I think that the biblical scholar Willem van Gemmeren is pretty much right on when he describes the genre of Jonah as a historical parable, or Palmer Robertson describes it as a didactic history. What they mean by that is that it's historical and true, and yet it's in a form of a parable or a story that's meant to teach us a point. And I don't think those two things are in competition with each other. You can write history in a way that is engaging and teaches true points. And I think Jonah functions in a way like the parables that we see in scripture, particularly the parable that the prophet Nathan tells to David in 2 Samuel 12. Nathan told David a story about a wicked rich man who went and stole the only lamb of the poor man. But then Nathan does something interesting. He takes that story and he turns it at David and said, you are that wicked rich man. 
he tells a story and then puts David in the shoes of one of the people in the story, which makes David honestly quite uncomfortable and draws him to repentance. The book of Jonah, in a similar way, is meant to put us in the shoes of the prophet Jonah. The book at the end of chapter four ends with a question from the Lord. The Lord questions Jonah, but interestingly, the book never gives an answer. It's kind of left open-ended. And the reason for that is it takes this question that is asked to Jonah and it takes and turns it out to us as the reader. When we read the question, we're meant to ask, how would I respond to the question that the Lord has just posed to Jonah? We're meant to see ourselves in the shoes of this prophet. And I think it's very easy for us to read through something like Jonah, to laugh at how foolish Jonah is, how silly he is, how disobedient he is. But it's one of my desires as we read through Jonah, that it will will be a frequent occurrence that we go, oh, silly Jonah. Oh, wait. Ouch, that kind of hurts. So I hope over and over again, we can actually see that we make exactly the same mistakes as this foolish prophet. It's meant to be not a comfortable book for us to read. It's going to week by week call us out in our sin very clearly. And I'm going to have to say a lot of uncomfortable things this summer to us as a congregation. And I have to receive those words myself. As my heart and my sin are exposed before me. And I just pray that you will receive that as well as the grace of God to open up your hearts, to show you your sin, to draw you to Jesus. Jonah is so much more than just a fun story about a big fish. So now that I've spent most of my time introducing the book of Jonah, which is okay, we're at the front end of the book. I want us to dive just for a short time into the first three verses. And these verses really set the stage, I think, for us to understand what's going on through the rest of the book of Jonah. So look with me over to verse 1, and then keep your Bibles open through the rest, and we'll look through these first three verses piece by piece. The book begins, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. Like I've already mentioned, Jonah, the son of Amittai, is mentioned by name in 2 Kings 14, verses 23 through 27. He was a prophet in the 8th century BC in the northern kingdom of Israel around the time of the reign of King Jeroboam II. And what's important for us to see is that this was a time in Israel's history that Israel was very wicked. The Lord often had to call out against Israel and had delivered a prophecy to the people of Israel that they would be overrun by the Assyrians and brought into captivity. If you are thinking 8th century and you know the history of God's people, Uh, Israel as a country was invaded and conquered by the Assyrians in 722. So this is taking place just shortly before Israel as a country is conquered and destroyed by the Assyrian army. And this is why the reason, uh, this is one of the reasons why the content of what the Lord tells Jonah to do is so stunning. The Lord calls out to Jonah and he says, arise in verse two, go to Nineveh, that great city and call out against it for their evil has come up before me. Nineveh is a great city. It's a great Assyrian city. It was located around modern-day Mosul, Iraq. And during Jonah's time, Nineveh and the Assyrians in general were a rising world power. They They were gaining power. They were the greatest military threat to Israel itself. 
They're the country of the Assyrians that lay just to the north of the northern kingdom of Israel. And not only this, but the Assyrians were particularly known for their torture, for their brutality. You can actually, if you ever travel over to London and you go to the British Museum, you can see a number of artifacts from around the time of Jonah from the Assyrians. And what's interesting is that the Assyrians in their own art depicted themselves as being brutal. It wasn't just that other people claimed that they were brutal. They boasted in how brutal that they were and the way that they killed and tortured people as a country and as a culture. So when it says that their evil has risen up before the Lord, it's very true. They were a wicked and evil country. And yet the Lord calls to his own prophet to go to this wicked nation and to prophesy to them. So what does Jonah do? Does Jonah go? If you know the story, you know he doesn't. Instead of obeying the Lord's call, he turns and he runs. And I want to highlight just three aspects of Jonah's flight that I think are very instructive for us. Three ways that he runs. Jonah ran from God's call, ran from God's people, and ran from God himself. Jonah ran from God's call, ran from God's people, and ran from God himself. So let's look at the first of those, and that Jonah ran from God's call. If you read through the prophets in the Old Testament, you'll see over and over again the phrase, now the word of the Lord came to so-and-so a prophet. It occurs well over a hundred times in the Old Testament, those words that we see right at the beginning of verse one. And it often contains from the Lord a direct command to the prophet. And then there's a pattern that occurs over and over again in these verses. The Lord gives a command and then the prophet obeys. And the way that the text shows that the prophet obeys is it takes the verbs of God's command and repeats them directly in the next verse with the prophet doing them. So let me show you just a couple of places. Last week, uh, Reverend Bill Acker preached for us from, to us from 1 Kings uh, chapter 19, and he covered the context of Elijah's ministry in chapter 17 and 18. I just want to use two examples here of seeing the same language that we get in Jonah and how the prophet responds. In 1 Kings 17, verse 8, 9, and 10, it, it reads like this. Pay attention to this. The, the word of the Lord came to him, to Elijah, arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I've commanded a widow there to feed you. And what does Elijah do? So he arose and went to Zarephath. So the Lord says, arise, go to Zarephath. Elijah arose and went to Zarephath, the same two Hebrew verbs. And so it's emphasizing his obedience. And then later in 1 Kings 18, verses 1 and 2, after many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in that same exact language in the third year saying, go show yourself to Ahab and I will send rain upon the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Abraham. So again, God says, go and show and Abraham went to show. It's the same exact Hebrew verbs. And we see that repeated over and over and over again through the Old Testament. But what does Jonah do? Jonah is the case that breaks the pattern. The Lord says to him, arise and go. So did Jonah arise and go? No. Jonah arose and ran. He arose and 
he fled. And this highlights Jonah's rebellion. He knew what the Lord had said to him. He knew that God had said, arise and go. And it's almost as if Jonah didn't even think about it. It highlights how quickly the Lord says, arise and go. Jonah stands up and he runs the other direction. He flees from God's call. One of my professors, my Hebrew professor, Mark Futado, he described this as, as if the Lord was calling you from, from here in Oshkosh. He, of course, Mark Futado didn't talk about Oshkosh. But imagine the Lord here in Oshkosh calls you to go to New York. And instead, you run down to O'Hare Airport and you hop on a plane and you fly to Hawaii. It's essentially what's going on here. Jonah fled the opposite direction. Tarshish was in, in, the, in the ancient mind as far as he could get in the other direction from where the Lord called him to go in Nineveh. So what was Jonah's issue? Why did he do this? Well, it wasn't an issue of ignorance. Jonah was a prophet of the Lord. Jonah knew the character of the Lord well. Jonah knew the scriptures well. And in this case, Jonah knew exactly what the Lord had call him, called him to do. And in fact, we're going to find out as we go through the book of Jonah, that Jonah, at least on paper, had very good theology. He knew his stuff. So it wasn't a problem of his head. It wasn't a problem of of not knowing the right information. And we see that really the issue is something in Jonah's heart. Interestingly, Jonah, the book, doesn't reveal exactly what's going on in Jonah's heart until until chapter 4. And so I'm actually going to wait mostly until the book itself shows us what's going on in his heart. But it it was largely related to hate that he had towards other people, self-righteousness that Jonah was was keeping in his heart. But we need to be reminded, even from these first few verses, that not every issue in the Christian life can be summed up by just not knowing enough. I think sometimes in the Reformed tradition, which our church is a part of, we think that all we need is more theology. That we just need more knowledge, and that's going to fix every single issue that we have in our Christian life. And I certainly believe that knowledge is important. We need to know God's word. We need to know who God has revealed himself to be. We need to study our theology well. But as we like to emphasize at Livingstone, the holistic Christian life involves not only our heads, but it involves our hearts. It involves our hands. You can be a stellar theologian. You can have read all of Kelvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion, all like 3,000 pages or whatever it is. You can have gone to seminary and just graduated with the Master of Divinity. You can do all of these things and you can still have a heart that rebels against God, a heart that doesn't love him, a heart that doesn't want to do what God has said. I would even venture to say that more often than not, our disobedience against God is not an issue of not knowing what God desires from us. Sorry for all the negatives in there. It's not an issue of, of not having any idea what God wants us to do. The issue is more often that we know exactly what God would have us do in a situation, but we don't want to do it. We just don't want to do what God has said. And we may not run to a different city. We may not flee to Hawaii when God calls us to New York, but how often do we know exactly what God is calling us to do? And then we run after other things. Too often we run away from our duty, our duty as evangelists, as husbands, as wives, fathers and mothers, sons, daughters, disciple makers, simply as Christians. We know what God has called us to do, but we run. We need the reminder, I think, from James in James 4, 
So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it is sin. I think too often we think that sin is just that list of the few things that we shouldn't do. And as long as we don't do those things, we're doing well. But the fact is that sin is also not doing what God has told us to do. There's kind of two sides to it. It's called sins of omission and sins of commission. Sins of commission is doing those things that God has told us not to do. And sins of omission is omitting the things that God has positively called us to do. And what we should desire is to have consistency in our lives. We should desire to have consistency between what we know and what we confess with our lips to be true and then how we live, avoiding what we know is wrong and then pursuing the callings that the Lord has put in front of us, pursuing actively those things that are good and right. So Jonah ran from God's call and then Jonah also ran from God's people. I think it's significant that Jonah could have simply refused to go. He could have just dug in his heels and said, I'm just not going to do it. When I was a kid, I was an extremely stubborn child. Just my mom's ever here on a Sunday. Go talk with her. She'll give you some great stories. One of my favorite phrases as a kid was, I not do it. I not do it. my, My parents would say, you know, go clean your room. I not do it. I would just dig in my heels and I would stubbornly refuse to do what I was told to do. So kids, don't do that. Don't learn that phrase from me and use it with your parents. That's not why I'm saying it. But I love saying, I not do it. But Jonah didn't just say, I not do it. Jonah ran. He ran. He fled. He fled in the opposite direction. And I think it's significant that he left Israel. He didn't just stay among God's people. He was a prophet who was called to Israel to serve them, to declare God's word to them. He was proud of being an Israelite. We'll see that later in chapter one. And yet he is content to flee to Tarshish. He's content to go live the rest of his life among a people that have no idea who God is, to hide his identity as the prophet of the Lord and to never again dwell amongst God's people. He flees and he runs away. It's even significant. The first place he goes, Joppa, is a non-Israelite city. He flees in his sinful rebellion to a place where no one will know him. No one will call him out on his sin. No one will say, hey, Jonah, what are you doing here? He flees to Joppa, hops on a boat. First thing he can do, gets out of town. And this is a pattern that we need to be aware of in ourselves. When we drift into patterns of sin, when we drift into rebellion against God, we need to know what God calls us to do. And we need to know that we want to live our own way. And in in doing that, we often drift away from God's people. We slowly but surely pull away. We separate from God's people. And it's not always at a full sprint out of town like Jonah, but it's just stepping away time after time from the community that God has put us in. We disconnect ourselves from people that know what's going on in our hearts, people people that know what's going on in our lives, people who will lovingly confront us and call us out in our foolishness. We need that but we don't want to hear it. And I think it's significant that the book that we just studied through, Hebrews, which we just finished a couple weeks ago, it talks so much about apostasy, talks so much about running away from the Lord. And I think it's significant that it contains in chapter 10, this encouragement for us. Consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. So keep an eye on yourself, but also keep an eye on one another. 
Look out for the warning signs. Look out for people and even yourself pulling away slowly but surely from the Christian community that God has put you in. And if you notice people pulling away, invite them back in. Look, on Sunday mornings, we're not taking weekly attendance. I'm not going to write down, oh boy, the Racines are at a wedding this week. I need to call Jesse and tell him if he misses another Sunday, you know, he's going to be in big trouble. We're, we're not doing that. But if we notice one another pulling away, not coming to community groups or not coming and fellowshipping with, with God's people, not coming and worshiping with God's people, we should want people to call us out. We should want people that will invite us back in to be aware that it's so easy to drift away, especially in summer. It's so easy in summer to say, I'm just going to spend all my time out at the lake, out at the cabin, and I'm just going to kind of avoid God's people. And slowly as you drift away, it's easy to fall more and more into the sin that you just don't want people to know about. And you want to hide. So again, let's not be like Jonah. Let's not run from God's call and let's not run from God's people. Lastly, we see that Jonah ran from God himself. And I really think that the first two types of running that we saw are just symptoms of what's really going on in the core issue for Jonah. And I think just like in the medical profession, we have some nurses here. I'm married to one. If you uh, notice the symptoms of someone, you don't just need to deal with the symptoms. You need to find out what's actually going on inside. No good doctor would just continually give Tylenol to someone with chronic pain and never investigate what's actually going on in that person. And as more and more we dive into Jonah and we dive into this book, we're going to see the core heart issues coming out. We learn that Jonah is really running from God's call, but ultimately Jonah is really running from God himself. And that's right at the core of what's going wrong with Jonah. Look at verse three with me. It says, Jonah fled to Tarshish, but going to Tarshish was not ultimately Jonah's goal. His goal was to flee from the presence of the Lord. I grew up in a small farm town, a one stoplight type town. I don't know if any of you grew up in small towns. There were quite a few students in my high school who, if you ask them before they graduated where they wanted to go and where they wanted to live someday, they would respond, anywhere but here. I don't know if any of you have ever heard someone say that. I just want to go anywhere but here. I think sometimes I've heard that about Oshkosh, and that makes me pretty sad because I love this city. But that's similar to what Jonah's doing here. He just wants to run as far and as fast as he can away from God. And the phrase, from the presence of the Lord, notice how it's repeated twice just in this one verse. And if you wanted a really literal translation from the Hebrew here, it would be translated from the face of the Lord from the face of the Lord. Jonah wanted to get out of God's face, get away from him. He wanted to get away from God being able to see him, God being able to know him. He wanted to get as far away from God as he could. And Tarshish... And I think that our sin, whether it's doing what's wrong, or not doing what's right, I think it's often just a symptom of trying to get away from God, trying to run and hide from him. And for most of us, it's not a physical flight. It's not just getting up and running. But instead, we have places in our hearts and places in our lives that we would just rather not have God around. In our lip, with our lips at church on Sunday morning, we, we confess that Psalm 16 is true, which says, you have made known to me the path of life. 
in your presence, God, is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And then we go home and we try to ignore God's presence. We try to flee from him. We want to pursue our own pleasures. We think it'd be more convenient if God just wasn't around. The mature Christian life is a life that's lived in the presence of God. A life that is lived acknowledging that he sees and he knows and he's with us. And instead of finding that as a frightening thing, finding his presence as our greatest joy and something to be sought and desired. Now, you can ask yourself, if Jonah had good theology, didn't he know that running away from God was impossible? And I would say, of course, on paper, Jonah knew that running away from God was possible. We're going to see next week that Jonah was fully aware that God was the God of the heavens, the God who made the sea and the dry land. And I think it's funny that the man who confesses that God created the sea tries to flee from God by hopping on a boat. Doesn't really make sense. If he had thought about it for any minute, God, who is sovereign over all of these things, the creator of all of these things. And I'm going to run from him by fleeing in the very place that he has created. But how often do we know that we cannot flee from God? That God is always with us, and yet we try to do it all the time. How often do our sin issues stem from trying to ignore that God is really present with us? From trying to live as if God doesn't see, and God just doesn't care. And it doesn't work. And there are always tragic consequences to trying to do this. Tragic consequences to running from God. There's another word that's repeated in verse three that's very significant. It's particularly significant through all of chapter one. It's the word down, down. Jonah flees from God. And when he flees from God, he doesn't just go away from God. He goes down. He goes down to Joppa. He boards a ship and goes down into the ship. And then he keeps going down and down until at the end of chapter one, he goes down into the sea and down into the belly of a fish. So to flee from God is never to just get away from him as if we could do that anyway. It's always a descent. It is always going down. It's always to get closer and closer and closer to the grave, to death and to hell. That is the consequences of running from our God. We're fleeing downward. But the sad thing is that to flee from our God, even to death, will never free us from his presence and it will never free us from his judgment. But there's good news for us. One of the main themes throughout the book of Jonah is the connection between God's justice and God's mercy. In verse two, God commissioned Jonah to go to this wicked, evil, brutal city of Nineveh and to declare his judgment and wrath against that evil, right? God calls Jonah to go and declare against Nineveh. But God's purpose in this announcement was not just to declare judgment, but was to provide an opportunity for repentance and for the display of God's great mercy and God's steadfast love and compassion for those who turn from their sin and turn to him. We're going to see through the rest of the book of Jonah that God's message to Nineveh was one of judgment, but it was also a manifestation of God's love to the nations, God's love to all people, to those who hear of their sin and turn to him in repentance and in faith. We need to see that it's God's grace to us when he shows us our sin, just as it was his love and mercy and compassion to Nineveh when he sent a prophet to declare to them their great evil and wickedness and the coming judgment of God. 
We often think it's the mean, hateful preacher that declares that God is coming to judge the world, that to flee from God, to live in sin and rebellion means death and hell. But that is the most loving message that the preacher can declare to those who are living in sin because they also hear the the, the mercy of God, the news that our God is faithful and just to forgive. And as much of the book of Jonah, as much as it's going to be uncomfortable for us, because I hope today, even just briefly looking at how we run from God, I hope that was uncomfortable for you in some spots. It's going to be uncomfortable, but it's God's grace. It's going to constantly reveal our sin, and it's going to be full of good news of a God who's gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and a God who relents from disaster. It reveals our sinful running from God so that instead we can run to Jesus. So that we can run to the prophet who, unlike Jonah, never ran from the will of the Father. A prophet who submitted even to the point of death on a cross so that the judgment of God poured out on him might mean mercy and grace and forgiveness for us. That is the good news. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for giving us your word, giving us all of your word, whether the books are 150 chapters long or four or one, whether it's a chapter with 100 verses or a book with 48, God, you have spoken to us in your word and it's all beneficial. It's all for our good. So help us to receive your word, to receive your correction, to receive the hard words from you. The words that draw us, pull us away from our our running and from our sin. Words that draw us back to you and help us to look to Christ, to see that in him there is forgiveness and love and mercy. Help us to run to Jesus instead of running away from you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.